chapter eleven part one of the ordeal of mark twain this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the ordeal of mark twain by van wick brooks chapter eleven mustered out part one Quote, a man who awoke too early in the darkness while the others were all still asleep dmitri marishkovsky and so we come to mark twain's last phase to that hour when outwardly liberated at last from the bonds and the taboos that have thwarted him and distorted him he turns and rends the world in the bitterness of his defeat threescore years and ten he said in that famous seventieth birthday speech it is the scriptural statute of limitations after that you owe no active duties for you the strenuous life is over you are a time expired man to use kipling's military phrase you have served your term well or less well and you are mustered out what a conception of the literary career you see how he looks back upon his life a pilot in those days he had written in life on the mississippi was the only unfettered and entirely independent human being that lived in the earth writers of all kinds are manacled servants of the public we write frankly and fearlessly but then we modify before we print in truth every man and woman and child has a master and worries and frets in servitude but in the day i write of the mississippi pilot had none no wonder he had loved that earlier career in which for once and once only he had enjoyed the indispensable condition of the creative life as for the life of literature it had been for him and he assumed that it was for all a life of moral slavery we write frankly and fearlessly but then we modify before we print shades of tolstoy and thomas carlyle of nietzsche and ibsen and whitman did you ever hear such words on the lips of a famous confrere you whose opinions were always unpopular did you ever once in the angelic naivete of your souls conceive the quaint idea of modifying a thought or a phrase because it annoyed some rich business man some influential priest some foolish woman what were their flagellations their gross and petty punishments to you thrice armored in the inviolate immaterial aura of your own ingenuous truthfulness the rapt contemplation of your noble dreams look with pity then out of your immortal calm upon this poor frustrated child whom nature had destined to become your peer and who 
a swan born among geese never even found out what a swan was and had to live the goose's life himself yes it is true that mark twain had never so much as imagined the normal existence of the artist of the writer who writes to please himself and by so doing brings eternal joy to the best of humanity to whom old age far from being a release from irksome duties brings only amid faltering forces a fresh challenge to the pursuit of the visions and the hopes of youth you are a time expired man to use kipling's military phrase you have served your term it is in the language of the barracks of the prison of an alien discipline at last escaped that mark twain thinks of the writer's life and you are mustered out his first breathless thought was to tell the truth at last seventy years he said again is the time of life when you arrive at a new and awful dignity when you may throw aside the decent reserves which have oppressed you for a generation and stand unafraid and unabashed upon your seven terraced summit and look down and teach unrebuked huck finn escaping from an unusually long and disagreeable session with aunt polly that is the posture of mark twain seventy years young in this moment of release of relief of an abandon which with time has become filled with sober thoughts to teach unrebuked unabashed unafraid mr howells referring to this period speaks of a constant growth in the direction of something like recognized authority in matters of public import mark twain was indeed accepted as a sort of national sage but how is it possible for anyone who reads his speeches now removed from that magnetic presence of his to feel that he played this role in any distinguished way was he really the seer the clairvoyant public counsellor he had learned to look with a certain perspective upon what he came to call this great big ignorant nation the habitude of such power as he possessed such experience of the world as he had had and they were great in their way showed him how absurd it was to spread the eagle any longer there is something decidedly fresh and strong about those speeches still he scouted the fatuous nonsense about american ideals that becomes more and more vocal the more closely the one american ideal of all the people approaches the vanishing point good sharp honest advice he offered in abundance upon the primitive decencies of citizenship in this america the refuge of the oppressed from everywhere who can pay fifty dollars admission anyone except a chinaman was he not courageous indeed this general spokesman of the epic of bishop potter and mrs potter palmer 
he who said do right and you will be conspicuous was the first to realize that his courage was of the sort that costs one little that passion for the limelight that inordinate desire for approval was a sufficient earnest that he could not even if he had so desired do anything essentially unpopular it was no accident therefore that his mind was always drifting back to that famous watermelon story which tens of thousands of living americans have heard him tell it appears three times in his published speeches he told how as a boy he had stolen a watermelon and having opened it and found it green returned it to the farmer with a lecture on honesty whereupon he was rewarded with the gift of another watermelon that was ripe it was the symbol of his own career for his courage and he frankly admitted it had always been the sort of courage he described in his story luck tell the truth in short he could not his life had given him so little truth to tell his seventieth birthday had left him free to speak out and yet just as he played safe as a public sage so also he continued to play safe as a writer am i honest he wrote in that same seventy-first year to twitchell i give you my word of honor privately i am not for seven years i have suppressed a book which my conscience tells me i ought to publish i hold it a duty to publish it there are other difficult duties which i am equal to but i am not equal to that one it was his bible what is man which as he had said some years before mrs clemens loathes and shudders over and will not listen to the last half nor allow me to print any part of it did he publish it at last yes anonymously and from that final compromise we can see that his mustering out had come too late he could not rouse himself indeed from the inertia with which old age and long habits of easy living had fortified the successful half of his double personality tolstoy at eighty set out on a tragic pilgrimage to redeem in his own eyes a life that had been compromised by wealth and comfort but the poet in tolstoy had never slumbered or slept it had kept the conflict conscious it had registered its protest not sporadically but every day day in day out by act and thought it had kept its right of way open mark twain had lived too fully the life of the world the average sensual man had engulfed the poet like an old imprisoned revolutionist it faced the gates of freedom too long deferred what visions of revolt had thrilled it in earlier years how it had shaken its bars but now the sunlight was so sweet the run of a little sap along those palsied limbs 
on his seventieth birthday mark twain was dazzled by his liberty he was going to tell the world the truth the whole truth and a little more than the truth within a week he found that he no longer had the strength glance at mr paine's record in eighteen ninety nine we find him writing as follows to mr howells for several years i have been intending to stop writing for print as soon as i could afford it at last i can afford it and have put the pot-boiler pen away what i have been wanting is a chance to write a book without reserves a book which should take account of no one's feelings and no one's prejudices opinions beliefs hopes illusions delusions a book which should say my say right out of my heart in the plainest language and without a limitation of any sort i judged that that would be an unimaginable luxury heaven on earth it is under way now and it is a luxury an intellectual drunk the book was the mysterious stranger while he was under the spell of composing it that sulphurous little fairy tale seemed to him the fruition of his desire but he was inhibited from publishing it and this only poured oil upon the passion that possessed him at once this craving reasserted itself with tenfold intensity he tinkered incessantly at what is man he wrote it and rewrote it he read it to his visitors he told his friends about it eventually he published this but the fact that he felt he was obliged to do so anonymously fanned his insatiable desire still more something more personal he must write now he fixed his mind on that with a consuming intensity to express himself was no longer a mere artistic impulse it had become a categorical imperative a path out of what was for him a life of sin with all my practice he writes humorously in one of his letters i realize that in a sudden emergency i am but a poor clumsy liar there is nothing humorous however in that refusal of his to continue tom sawyer's story into later life because he would only lie like all the other one-horse men in literature and the reader would conceive a hearty contempt for him there he expressed all the anguish of his own soul to tell the truth now what truth any and every kind of truth anything that it would hurt him to tell and by so doing purge him we recall how he had adored the frankness of robert ingersoll how he had kept urging his brother orion to write an autobiography that would spare nobody's feelings and would let all the cats out of the bag simply tell your story to yourself laying all hideousness utterly bare reserving nothing he had told him let orion do it we can almost hear him whispering to himself and orion had done it 
it wrung my heart wrote mr howells of that astounding manuscript and i felt haggard after i had finished it the writer's soul is laid bare it is shocking mark twain had found a vicarious satisfaction in that he who at the same moment was himself attempting to write an absolutely faithful autobiography as mr paine tells us a document in which his deeds and misdeeds even his moods and inmost thoughts should be truly set down to write such a book now had become the ruling desire of his life he had developed what mr paine calls a passion for biography and especially for autobiography diaries letters and such intimate human history for confessions in a word he longed now not to reform the world but to redeem himself writing for print he speaks of that as of something unthinkable a man who writes for print he seems to say this man who spoke of free speech as the privilege of the grave becomes a liar in the mere act he is afraid of the public but he is more afraid now of himself whom he cannot trust he wishes to write not to be read and plans a series of letters to his friends that are not going to be mailed you can talk with a quite unallowable frankness and freedom he tells himself in a little note which mr paine has published because you are not going to send the letter when you are on fire with theology you'll not write it to rogers who wouldn't be an inspiration you'll write it to twitchell because it will make him writhe and squirm and break the furniture when you are on fire with a good thing that's indecent you won't waste it on twitchell you'll save it for howells who will love it as he will never see it you can make it really indecenter than he could stand and so no harm is done yet a vast advantage is gained was ever a more terrible flood piled up against the sluice gates of a human soul at last the gates open safely seated behind a proviso that it is not to be published until he has been dead a century mark twain begins his autobiography in the first flush he imagines that he is doing what he has longed to do work he said to a young reporter the passage is to be found in the collection of his speeches i retired from work on my seventieth birthday since then i have been putting in merely twenty-six hours a day dictating my autobiography but it is not to be published in full until i am thoroughly dead i have made it as caustic fiendish and devilish as possible it will fill many volumes and i shall continue writing it until the time comes for me to join the angels it is going to be a terrible autobiography it will make the hair of some folks curl but it cannot be published until i am dead and the persons mentioned in it and their children and grandchildren are dead it is something awful 
you see what he has in mind for twenty years his daily reading has been pepys and saint-simon and casanova he is going to have a spree a debauch of absolutely reckless confession he is going to tell things about himself he is going to use all the bold bad words that used to shock his wife his wife perhaps he is even going to be realistic about her why not has he not already in his letters said two or three playful things about her not incompatible with his affection but still decidedly wanting in filial respect st andrew carnegie and uncle joe cannon his affectionate old friend of the copyright campaign are fair game anyway and so are some of those neighbors in hartford and so are howells and rogers and twitchell he is going to exact his pound of flesh for every one of that long list of humiliations but he is going to exact it like an olympian what is the use of being old if you can't rise to a certain impersonality a certain universality if you can't assume at last the prerogatives of the human soul lost in its loneliness and its pathos upon this little orb that whirls amid the swimming shadows and enormous shapes of time and space if you can't expand and contract your eye like the ghost you are so soon to be if you can't bring home for once the harvest of all your pains and all your wisdom as for that tearing booming nineteenth the mightiest of all the centuries what a humbug it was so full of cruelties and meannesses and lying hypocrisies what fun he is going to have what magnificently wicked fun you see mark twain's intention he is going to write for his own redemption the great book that all the world is thirsting for the book it will gladly however impatiently wait a hundred years to read and what happens he found it says mr paine a pleasant lazy occupation which prepares us for the kind of throbbing truth we are going to get twenty-six installments of that autobiography were published before he died in the north american review they were carefully selected no doubt not to offend the brimstone was held in reserve but as for the quality of that brimstone can we not guess it in advance he confessed freely says mr paine that he lacked the courage even the actual ability to pen the words that would lay his soul bare one paragraph in fact that found its way into print among the diffuse and superficial impressions of the north american review gives us we may assume the measure of his general candor i have been dictating this autobiography of mine daily for three months i have thought of fifteen hundred or two thousand incidents in my life which i am ashamed of 
but i have not gotten one of them to consent to go on paper yet i think that that stock will still be complete and unimpaired when i finish these memoirs if i ever finish them i believe that if i should put in all or any of these incidents i should be sure to strike them out when i came to revise this book bernard shaw once described america as a nation of villagers well mark twain had become the village atheist the captain of his type the judge driscoll of a whole continent judge driscoll we remember could be a free thinker and still hold his place in society because he was the person of most consequence in the community and therefore could venture to go his own way and follow out his own notions mark twain had proved himself superlatively smart he was licensed to say his say what inhibited him now therefore even more than his habits of moral slavery was a sense how can we doubt it a half unconscious sense that concerning life itself he had little of importance to communicate his struggle of conscience over the publication of what is man points it is true toward another conclusion but certainly the writing of his autobiography must have shown him that with all the will in the world and with the freedom of absolute privacy he was incapable of the grand utterance of the prophets and the confessors there was nothing to prevent him from publishing three thousand years among the microbes the design of which was apparently free from personalities if he had been sufficiently interested to finish it he thought of founding a school of philosophy at reading like that other school at concord but none of these impulses lasted his prodigious market value confirmed him at moments no doubt in thinking himself a nestor but something within this tragic old man must have told him that he was not really the sage the seer and that mankind could well exist without the discoveries and the judgments of that gregarious pilgrimage of his it is noble to be good he said during these later years but it is nobler to show others how to be good and less trouble which conveys in its cynicism a profound sense of his own emptiness he tempted the fates when he published what is man anonymously if that book had had a success of scandal his conscience might have pricked him on to publish more immature as his judgment was he had no precise knowledge of the value of his ideas but at least he knew that great ideas usually shock the public and that if his ideas were great they would probably have that gratifying effect fortunately or unfortunately the book was received says mr Payne, as a clever and even brilliant expose of philosophies which were no longer startlingly new after that just 
that very generous public verdict for the book is in fact quite worthless except for the light it throws on mark twain he must have felt that he had no further call to adopt the unpopular role of a mephistopheles with all the more passion however his balked fury the animus of the repressed satirist in him turned against the harsher aspects of that civilization which had tied his tongue automatically as we have seen from the incidents of the gorky dinner and the portsmouth conference and the war prayer restraining those impulses that were not supported by the sentiment of a safe majority he threw himself with his warm heart and his quick pulse into the defense of all that are desolate and oppressed the human race was behaving very badly says mr paine of the hour of his triumphant return to america in nineteen hundred unspeakable corruption was rampant in the city the boers were being oppressed in south africa the natives were being murdered in the philippines leopold of belgium was massacring and mutilating the blacks in the congo and the allied powers in the cause of christ were slaughtering the chinese the human race had always been behaving badly but mark twain was in a frame of mind to perceive it now was he the founder of the great school of muckrakers he at any rate the most sensitive the most humane of men rode forth to the encounter now the champion of all who like himself had been in bondage it is impossible to ignore this personal aspect of his passionate sympathy with suffering and weakness in any form whether in man or beast in these later years it was the spectacle of strength triumphing over weakness that alone aroused his passion or even save in his autobiographic and philosophic attempts induced him to write one remembers those pages in following the equator about the exploitation of the kanakas then there was his book about king leopold and the congo and the czar's soliloquy and a horse's tale written for mrs fisk's propaganda against bullfighting in spain the dreyfus case was an obsession with him finally among many other writings of a similar tendency there was his joan of arc in which he had summed up a lifetime's rage against the forces in society that array themselves against the aspiring spirit joan of arc has always been a favorite theme with old men old men who have dreamed of the heroic life perhaps without ever attaining it the sharp realism of anatole france's biography which so infuriated mark twain was if he had known it the prerogative of a veteran who equally as the defender of dreyfus the comrade of juarez and the volunteer of nineteen fourteen 
has proved that skepticism and courage are capable of a superb rapport mark twain had not been able to rise to that level and the sentimentality of his own study of joan of arc shows it in his animus against the judges of joan one perceives however a savage and despairing defense of the misprized poet the betrayed hero in himself end of chapter eleven part one recording by lucretia b